From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by the Golden Steer. I'm John Katzlamitis, and I've covered Las Vegas since 1996. In Season 3 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, I go one-on-one with Oscar Goodman, one of the last living legends of the mob era. A heads up before we dive into Season 3. Mobbed Up contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. Call some big cities by their nicknames, and most people know just where you mean. The Big Apple, Beantown, The Big Easy, and even though it's not favored by locals, Sin City. Like it or not, Las Vegas spent decades building its brand as a town that would deliver, indeed celebrate, things considered taboo elsewhere. Regarded as an open city for the mob, many representatives called Las Vegas a home away from home for decades. I came here in the fall of 1978, and this was a much different town, not only as it relates to organized crime or the mob, but everything else. This is longtime Las Vegas attorney Stan Hunterton. He served as the deputy chief counsel to the President's Commission on Organized Crime and special attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice Organized Crime and Racketeering Section. If you walked up and down the strip at that time, the town was mostly empty, not mostly full. As the city began to grow from vacant lots to more than four miles of hotels, casinos, and resorts, much of Las Vegas's early foundation has been attributed to the mob. The mob's role originally here was to provide financing and provide people who understood gambling. Since illegal gambling was their business, they also understood how to operate a legal casino and, of course, to skim what they considered their share off of the top. It was in 1946 when Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was at the helm of the Flamingo Hotel, the first resort-style hotel on the Strip. That property started a 40-year relationship between Las Vegas and organized crime that turned the city into one of the world's top tourist destinations. Fast forward to 1971, when the Chicago mob sent one of their top-ranking members to take over loan sharking and street rackets. But this wasn't just any member of the organization, according to Las Vegas author Jack Sheehan, who has penned 18 books and more than a thousand articles related to the mob. The two criminal figures that captivated the most attention when I got here in the late 70s was Jimmy Shagra and Tony the Anspilatro, who was reputedly the hitman of the Chicago mob. In addition to nicknames such as the Ant and Tough Tony, his reputation for a brutal brand of violence established him as one of the most fearsome mobsters of the 60s and 70s. He was involved in a sort of a management position at the Stardust Hotel. A lot of skimming of casino profits going back to Chicago and Miami. And Spilatro could be seen all over town. You'd go into a nightclub or even a fast food joint and Tony Spilatro would be there. And he would always have a couple of his henchmen with him. 
I just looked at him as this dangerous kind of bad guy who had all these murders allegedly attached to him. Given his high profile, Spilatro was in constant need of legal protection. And who better to keep in his corner than the lawyer who had just won the case in the crime of the century, a man who was growing to become a well-respected figure and icon in mob circles, Las Vegas attorney Oscar Balin Goodman. The two were introduced in a sports book through mutual connections. The word spread around town that if you had any kind of problem with the Gaming Control Board or the Gaming Commission, you got to see Oscar. In those days, every Saturday and Sunday, they would bet the ball games, and it was all legal here. And Tony would go in. There weren't any restrictions against him at that point in time. He was trying to earn a living here. They wouldn't let him alone. I mean, they put a jacket on him as soon as he moved into town, and he was being abused by uh, the authorities. And he came to me, and uh, as a lawyer. Tony Spilatro was a made member, also known as a full-fledged member of the mob, who rose through the Chicago ranks as an enforcer and hitman. He was a, a very interesting fellow, and people don't realize this because they don't, didn't want to give him a chance. But, you know, for me to say this, uh, people will sneer and snicker because uh, one side, and I call them sides because the FBI would do anything in the world uh, to get him, which offended me right off the bat. You don't get somebody. Uh, you may arrest somebody, but you don't get them. And whenever they said that, it set me on fire. But he um, really was nice to everybody in my law office. I think the thing that fascinates me about your relationship with, with uh, Tony, one thing you've mentioned is don't call him Tony the Ant. Well, you don't say that to his face. But I've never met, uh, I had never known, of course, Tony Spilatro's. I assure you of this, he would be very nice to you unless he feels that you did him wrong. Mm -hmm. And then uh, he would give you a stare and he would, I never heard him threaten anybody, but the stare was enough that uh, you try to be a little nicer. One of the most notorious incidents Spilatro was said to be involved in was the 1962 killing of the so-called M&M Boys, which was portrayed in the 1995 film Casino. The torture scene in the movie is famous, but rumors of the account were much more gruesome than what was on screen. Eventually, people uncovered the mangled bodies of both Jimmy Miraglia and Billy McCarthy, who had been targeted for shooting two men who were actually connected with the Chicago outfit and an innocent civilian. Their deaths made headlines. They were found in a car on the south side of Chicago. Their throats slit. This would be just one of the cases on which Oscar Goodman would represent Tony Spilatro, and one that was among the hardest of his career. I thought the toughest case was uh, probably uh, the Eminem case, mm -hmm. uh, the one that which was depicted in the uh, movie Casino, mm -hmm. where the fellow's eye was popped out of his head with the head being pl placed in a vice. That was a tough case. And uh, the local attorney uh, who knew his way around the courthouse, he and I had a bitter argument uh, to start off. And Tony was going to listen to me because I was his main lawyer. Uh, he, he wanted to waive a jury. And I, I love jury trials. I think it's one of the great American uh, benefits in our system where you can have 12 people uh, who are going to never see each other before, never see each other after, but will get into a room and have a fight over uh, what they consider to be the proper verdict. And um, I, I love jury trials. And the, the lawyer back there said, no, because of certain of the legal issues, I think we should waive the jury. 
and uh, go to trial uh, uh, before the court. The court's a fair court, and uh, he'll uh, listen very much to your legal arguments and the like. That was a tough mm-hmm. case for me. That was tough because I didn't have that jury to rely upon. It would take nearly 20 years for the outcome of that case to be revealed. It was one of many cases to come in which Goodman defended Spilatro. A years-long game of cat and mouse between Spilatro and federal prosecutors began, where he was suspected of killing 27 people. But the revolving door of arrests in Las Vegas and around the country did not result in jail time as a result of Oscar's representation. They arrested him, and then we either got him out on bail and he never went back in, or he was found not guilty. Tony was arrested on a Sunday, and they brought him down to Justice Court because I called the judge, Judge Legakes, Bob Legakes, and may his soul rest in peace. The poor guy died from Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, I said, Your Honor, my client, uh, Tony Spilaccio, has just been arrested, and I would like an immediate bail hearing. And this is an honest-to-God true story. I'm not making these stories up. And he says, uh, can you be down here about 2 o'clock? He says, I'm going to call up the DA's office. And they called up, I believe it was Ray Jeffers, who was a legitimate guy, a legitimate assistant district attorney. And Ray was there. And um, I said, who did he kill? There's a blank expression on his face. I don't know. Ray looks to the cop who arrested Tony. Who did he kill? I don't know. They didn't know who he killed because he didn't kill anybody. They just arrested him on a Sunday and Judge Legate said, own recognizance. And of course, everybody, Spilaccio's arrested for murder and they let him out on his own recognizance. The judge who, who did it, Legate's probably would have lost the election if they wrote about that in the newspaper that way. They didn't know who he killed. He didn't kill anybody. When Spilatro was first sent to Las Vegas, he was also instructed by mob bosses to keep an eye on Frank Lefty Rosenthal, a longtime oddsmaker who was in charge of the crime family's skimming operations at the Stardust and Fremont casinos. Money was being taken directly from count rooms and sent back by courier to mob bosses in Chicago, Kansas City, Milwaukee, and Cleveland, right under the noses of Nevada gaming regulators as the Las Vegas Review-Journal reported on March 9, 2014. Spilatro operated the gift shop at Circus Circus until authorities forced him out. From there, he moved to the Gold Rush Jewelry Store near the Strip, where he began knowingly buying stolen jewelry in order to resell it for profit. All were alleged crimes that would land Spilatro in the middle of court and the court of public opinion on an almost daily basis. And in your head, did you ever think that he was, that he actually committed these offenses? I mean, did he I, actually I, uh, look, put somebody head in a vice? Yeah, it wasn't up to me to make that decision. Um, I, I was not a moralist. That's not what a defense lawyer does. I make sure that the Constitution is adhered to by the government mm-hmm. and that the government agents don't engage in prosecutorial misconduct. That's the way I tried every single case the same way. It's a rarity I ever allowed a client to take the stand. I never let Tony Spilaccio get on the stand. I never let him talk to the media. Some clients started to insist that they do it, and every time they opened up their Did mouth. Did he want to talk to no, the media? No, no, but he wanted somebody to speak up for him. He says, they're beating me up every day. There's a bad story about me. You got to defend me. Uh, I, I, I got to talk to this guy. So I'm not going to let you talk to him. Once that happens, we're through. But I had clients who basically put themselves behind bars because they insisted on taking the stand, and that was their privilege. One of the cases that could have landed Spilatro in jail had nothing to do with murder. 
Rather, it had to do with telephone soliciting in 1981. It involved a Las Vegas business called the 50 State Distributing Company. It was thought to be a cover for a boiler room scam, including a case with the Gillette Corporation based in Boston. After receiving hundreds of complaints from customers around the country that they had made purchases over the phone and never received what they ordered, the corporation turned to private investigators to unravel the mystery. Enter Mike Powell, a retired Los Angeles police officer, former chief investigator for Intercept in Hollywood, and the only undercover operative to successfully infiltrate the skimming operation. One day he got a call from someone he didn't know at the FBI with a request. And he said that um, they're looking for someone to go undercover. And I said, you know, I wasn't interested. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you got to hear me out. And he said, I've interviewed about a half dozen cops, DEA, FBI, to take this case retired and every one of them turned it down. Like your eyeballs raised right there, you know, it piques your interest. And I said, why? He goes, because they were afraid. And quite frankly, I was, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I was hooked. I said, what, what is it? He goes, we need someone to go undercover into organized crime in Las Vegas for the federal government. I said, I could be on a plane in two days. And um, that's where it all started. With more than a dozen boiler rooms in Las Vegas, it was a lucrative business. The big thing back then was the skim at the Stardust Hotel. The Stardust Hotel was bringing in about $5 million a year. And that was a big thing. So what my job was is to prove that the whole organization was involved in this. So we had to get a lot of different people and different levels of people in the corporation to admit that they're, they are all aware it's a scam. And they said, so the prime suspects were the people from Chicago who hung out in a lunchroom in the middle of this big building. First, Powell had to get hired at 50 states. To do that, he needed a nod from Spilatro. He went to a bar he knew Spilatro's cronies frequented. He told the bartender he was flush with cash in Las Vegas hoping to land a sales job. In the following days, Powell found himself face-to-face -face with Spilatro one night at a mob-owned gentleman's club for a very non-traditional job interview. So at nine o'clock I went there and they met me in the parking lot and got me between two cars and kind of like, you know, they, they had their hands on me. It was almost like they were checking patting me, but they weren't trying to be obvious, but I knew what they were doing. And then they said, look, we're going to go, we're going to introduce you to Tony. Tony runs everything in Las Vegas. If he gives you the okay, you're in. We walked in and you know, I hated the joint. The music was so loud, you can't even think. And it was so crowded. We made our way to a VIP section and we went there and there was a couple of couches and there was a couple older Italian gentlemen sitting there with half-naked girls on their laps. And he says, wait here. And it looked like there was a bodyguard. There was a big, big guy standing behind the two guys sitting on the couch. And um, Polly was the guy's name. He walked over and he whispers in, who I assumed at the time was Tony. And then he waved me in and had me sit in the couch. I was about 15 feet away. It was kind of a big area, but it was a private area. And uh, they ordered me a drink. And when the girl came, I went to pay. And they go, you don't pay in this place. Okay, so uh, they talked, you know, I assume, because they were whispering to each other. And I think maybe once or twice, Tony looked down at me and we were there about 20 minutes. I, I couldn't hear anything, you know, music was so loud. And then Paulie got up and came over, walked over to me and he says, Tony wants to meet you. 
I said, okay. So I walked over and he, he didn't get up. He put his hand out. I went to shake his hand and he put his other hand on top of me, like the two hand grip, and he yanked me in like, you know, commanding. And he whispered in my ear, he said, you be a good boy. I said, yes, sir. And they go, let's go. So we walk out in the parking lot and they said, you know who that was? That's Tony Spilatro. He runs everything in Las Vegas. With Tony's approval, Powell would go on to be a salesman at 50 states and began his undercover investigation. He never saw Spilatro after that initial meeting, but it was clear that Spilatro was a man with cachet. After three weeks, more than 65 federal agents raided the phone operations with search warrants using information Powell had gathered. The agents recovered enough documents to fill more than one 40-foot trailer. As soon as Oscar Goodman heard that Spilatro's name was on the seized documents, he made his way to the scene. As I'm walking over, some lawyers were walking up this way, and one of them was Oscar Goodman. He was actually the first lawyer for them on the scene uh, with some other lawyers. I got a call and Oscar Goodman and his team got the case thrown out of court for illegal search and seizure because they seized all these documents and what they got, they busted them for was not only wire fraud, mail fraud, but they got them for money laundering and IRS tax evasion. I mean, it was a big widespread bust and um, the local judge here said that the warrant didn't specifically state anything to do with the IRS or money laundering or anything, so they threw the whole case out. So the federal government appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The appeals court overturned the lower court's decision, ruling that prosecutors did have a legal right to pursue all criminal activities encountered during the raid. The business was shut down. In the end, there was nothing to find Spilatro's involvement worthy of a jail sentence. For years, Spilatro managed to stay out of prison, both in Las Vegas and Chicago, with the help of his loyal criminal defense lawyer, Oscar Goodman. He became the outspoken mouthpiece for Spilatro and other mob figures in an ongoing war of words with Lawman. But shortly after the 1981 raid, the feds began making headway in their investigation of Spilatro. Oscar certainly knew that Anthony Spilatro and the other mafia-linked clients of his, he had to know in his heart that they had done some really bad things. But his job as a criminal defense attorney is very simple. Make sure that the government does not have any flaws in their case and that they present evidence that proves to a jury of his peers that a man is or woman is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That is their mandate. So if you ask Oscar, do you think Anthony Spilatro killed anybody? He'd probably say, no, he was a wonderful guy. I really enjoyed him as a client. He was a perfect gentleman whenever he was around my wife or kids. And he means that sincerely. And I'm sure that Spilatro was a perfect gentleman around those people. You just wouldn't want to be one of his enemies because you might end up in a barrel at Lake Mead to put it into a current context. Tony Spilatro and all the clients that I represented who were designated as reputed mobsters were all very nice people. They were all very kind to my office staff. They never used expletives in their presence. They always said thank you and please. Uh, they were kind and gentle. And I don't know where people get the idea that they're bad people. Spilatro also ran a burglary ring, later dubbed the Hole in the Wall Gang, because of its practice of drilling holes through the walls and ceilings of the buildings it entered. 
but he wasn't alone in putting this infamous group together. He had help, thanks to lifelong friend Frank Collada. Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas will be back after this. Can't get enough of the intrigue, drama, and excitement behind the history of Las Vegas? Live it by dining at the Golden Steer Steakhouse, the oldest steakhouse in Las Vegas and an old haunt of Tony Spilatro's. You know, the guy from the podcast you're listening to. The Golden Steer has been serving up famous and infamous customers since 1958, from mobsters to the Rat Pack, Muhammad Ali to Holly Madison. Enjoy this classic experience in person or try their world-famous best steaks on earth in the comfort of your own home by ordering today at goldensteerlasvegas.com. Spilatro summoned Collada, his childhood friend, from Chicago to serve as his criminal lieutenant. Together with the Hole in the Wall gang, they burglarized businesses, houses, and hotel rooms. Along the way, Collada was accused of murdering Jerry Listener, who was feeding information to police about Collada and Spilatro's activities. By 1982, Collada and Spilatro were no longer on friendly terms. Spilatro's fencing operation had been broken up. Key members of the Hole in the Wall gang were arrested by Las Vegas police in an undercover burglary sting at Bertha's Gift Shop, which was a few blocks east of the Strip. On July 4, 1981, Collada was arrested with five others in the Bertha's burglary. He decided out of fear for his own life to cooperate with Las Vegas police and FBI agents. Facing a long prison sentence and fearing that Spilatro was going to have him killed, Collada switched sides and became a government witness. Collada's cooperation was the beginning of the end of Spilatro's reign on the streets. In September 1983, Spilatro was indicted for conspiracy and obstruction of justice in the Jerry Listener murder. He was released on $100,000 bail and would go to trial in October, but not without one of his most trusted lawyers. I remember that specifically. I had just gotten through representing Jimmy Shagra and uh, getting the acquittal on the murder case. And uh, Warren Burnett, who was a wonderful lawyer from Texas, he said to me, Oscar, just remember, when you go home, smell the roses. I said, what do you mean, Warren? He says, take a day off. All you do is go from case to case to case. I said, that's my nature. He says, take a day off, smell the roses. So I went home, went down to my office and they had balloons and they had music playing. You won the Shagra case. And I said, terrific, but I have to say goodbye to everybody because I have to go over and see Tony. He had right just been- Right after the Shagra case. Uh, right, yeah, almost off the plane. Well, there were a lot of uh, arrests of Tony, unfortunately. And uh, I was right off the plane and uh, he had a court appearance and wouldn't let anybody else represent him in court. Uh, that's the reason he was waiting for me to get through with the case. At trial, Collada testified that he was involved in over 300 crimes, including four murders, perjury, robberies, and burglaries. He also turned against his childhood friend, saying that Spilatro ordered the 1979 fatal shooting of mob informant Jerry Listener and was responsible for the death of the so-called M&M boys. He said under Spilatro's orders, Collada lied under oath in 1979 to a federal grand jury. Spilatro was one of 18 people charged in a 17-count indictment. Despite all these claims, Spilatro would go on to be acquitted. Tony Spilatro, the FBI said, killed 27 people. And I said, well, uh, shame on you. And they said, what do you mean? How can you represent somebody like that? Uh, he's uh, 
he's the devil. He's 666 and you representing him, you're you're the prince of darkness. And I said, you want to know something? I may be a lot of things, but you're a rotten cop and you're a stupid cop because he didn't spend one day in jail with you chasing him. Spilatro remained a free man despite years of police investigations. His only felony conviction was for providing false information on a loan application. But in 1986, he was charged with racketeering and burglary for being part of a massive crime ring that stole more than $1 million from Las Vegas businesses and homes. If convicted on all counts in the federal court trial, he was looking at a 97-year prison term and a maximum of $95,000 in fines. Frank Collada was the key witness in the trial. Collada claimed that he and the other members of the Hole in the Wall gang would commit burglary, arson, extortion, and drug trafficking with a portion of the proceeds from these illegal activities going to Spilatro. Despite his growing reputation as one of the most dangerous criminals in the public eye, Oscar challenges that notion. I never saw him pick up a pen and start stabbing somebody. Matter of fact, we used to go all over the country because he was either arrested or charged or had summoned in front of a grand jury in places that you wouldn't even dream of. And I was always there to protect his rights, his constitutional rights, by the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would know each other's habits. And uh, he always treated me with a great deal of respect, one that I got a kick out of, although I didn't particularly care for it. He always he would uh, uh, make reservations for the rooms at the hotel we would be staying in either in Kansas City or New York City or Philly or wherever mm -hmm. the case was. And uh, he would always make a reservation for my room to be next to his room. And he got up very, very early. And he loved that first cup of coffee and his orange juice. And he, instead of knocking on the door or leaving a phone call that he wanted me to wake up at a certain time to join him, he made enough noise that he woke me up every morning so I would go through the little door that's between the two rooms and have the cup of coffee and keep him company before we went off to court. After three months at trial, the jury deliberated for 11 days. They were unable to reach unanimous verdicts on all 37 counts against the nine defendants, including Spilatro. A mistrial was declared. Tony and Oscar would have to go back in front of a court for a retrial or so they thought. On June 14, 1986, just over a week before proceedings were due to start again, Tony and his younger brother Michael drove away together from Michael's house in Oak Park, Illinois. They were never seen alive again. Eight days later, their bodies were found by a local farmer, beaten and buried, one on top of the other, in an Indiana cornfield. The bodies were found buried in this five-foot-deep grave just off of Indiana Highway 114. Both bodies were located in the same grave site, with the two individuals stacked one on top of the other. An autopsy identified their cause of death as blunt force trauma. Years later, their killers, who acted under orders from mob bosses, would be convicted in Chicago. This was in the famed Family Secrets trial in 2007 that took down the Chicago mob. Under what circumstances uh, and what was the environment in which you found out that he had died and the way he died? Well, I got a phone call, I think from Nancy, his wife, and she said, have you heard from Tony? I hadn't heard from him. Usually I heard from him every day. He would stop up at the office every single day because I had 10 cases going for him every single day. And uh, he, he missed four in a row. And so I said, well, if you're here, let me know because now I'm worried. 
And then the next thing I know, uh, with glee, some FBI guy calls me and says, uh, well, that's the end of that client. Uh, they found him in a cornfield in Indiana, and he's deader than a doornail. With glee. With glee. Uh, but uh, I was convinced that the government really didn't care uh, who killed him. They were more interested that he's dead. That was enough for them. Yeah, for that's them. Some sort of victory, apparently. Yeah, for them. News of their deaths weighed heavily on Oscar and his wife, Carolyn Goodman, who was elected to serve as mayor of Las Vegas in 2011. What really was the end of his appetite to keep going was the death of Tony. Tony was contrary to everything that's out there. Well, I don't know as far as the family. He never treated anybody any differently than with total dignity. Always when Oscar was out of town, he'd call me once or twice a week, everything okay, can I do anything, can I help you? Do you need anybody to help with the kids? It's, I mean, it was amazing to me with just consistent, genuine caring. The other part of him, I have no idea about it, but when he was murdered, um, because Oscar, um, whatever his relationship was with Tony, he just, yeah, he was in a very interesting situation because the thing was, of course, he probably, he not probably, but was definitely murdered by people he hung with, um, and he wasn't murdered by the government. But that was when absolutely Oscar just, that's it. You know, with Tony, uh, there were murder cases, there were racketeering cases, there were uh, RICO cases, there was robbery cases, there was black book cases, there were, I mean, one case after another. It took an inordinate amount of time that I devoted to my representation of him. And when he was uh, brutally murdered, uh, it's amazing. Uh, it dawned on me how much free time I had because I no longer had the burden of representing him. So it just, uh, I had to switch my life around because it just took so much time. I really had nothing to do. Tony's death was the beginning of the end for the more than 40 year run of Las Vegas by the mob. By the time of his slaying, federal authorities had convicted a string of Midwest Mafia bosses for skimming money at the Stardust, Fremont, and Tropicana casinos. Other mob figures had been convicted in Detroit and Las Vegas of wielding hidden influence at the Aladdin. The mob had lost its grip on the Strip, and its control over street rackets diminished. This is Las Vegas attorney Stan Hunterton. Nowadays, you can't build a showroom in a place like the Mirage or the MGM for what it costs to build a casino in the old days. I think we're living it now as we live in Las Vegas in, in this year, in the modern, more modern era. And this has nothing to do with battles in the courtroom and who was right or who was wrong or whether it's a good idea to use turned witnesses and wiretaps or a bad idea. It's a larger point, but I think maybe the most important one, and that is that Las Vegas simply outgrew the mob. The mob's heyday is long gone, but Oscar keeps a reminder of the significance of those days center stage in his namesake steakhouse at the plaza in downtown Las Vegas. A large bronze figure of Oscar and Tony stands near the restaurant entrance. 
worth close to $150,000. It weighs about 1,000 pounds and is made of museum bronze casting, a form of cast bronze that is made for indoor pieces. How come you're, you know, you're, you're, you're shaking? Every time you mention Tony's name, you begin to shake. Why? It's because I'm near the statue. Oh. I'm not sure that it's not... It's uh, not real? ...demonically possessed or something. No, it's no. It's a nice statue. <laughs> It's modeled after a famous news photo of Goodman's courthouse conference with Spilatro. Behind the statue is a sign that reads, Although Spilatro allegedly killed 27 people, with Goodman's defense, he never spent a day in prison. That is why Oscar Goodman is called Liberty's last champion. Spilatro memorialized as a statue, even at a privately owned hotel casino, has proven controversial to those who know the alleged dark crimes of the alleged murderer. I w was walking into your restaurant today and I walked past uh, you and Tony over there right, at the it's, entrance. It's, it's a real attraction. It, it is a real attraction. I, I, I'm really surprised that there hasn't been a fuss made about that, but that's something wrong in, in this country uh, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not a great believer in preserving history and, and not apologizing for it. And when there's a statue which celebrates the history, doesn't mean to say that you have to like the statue or agree with the statue, but these statues all over the country, they represent a certain time and a certain era uh, Civil War statues and the like, World War One statues and the like, and this statue represents a certain era in Las Vegas. World-renowned artist and sculptor Brian Hanlon donated the time and materials for good counsel. Hanlon says, The motivation behind it is to properly have historical markers for Oscar's life, which is one of the most extraordinary in the whole history of Las Vegas. The Mob Museum was offered the piece, but declined to display it before it settled at Oscar's Steakhouse. The Mob Museum president and CEO Jonathan Ullman told us, quote, The museum has a number of exhibits prominently featuring our chief visionary, Oscar Goodman, and his prolific career, designed to specifically illuminate his story and career and its significance to mob history. The museum will forever be indebted to him. At the time of his death in 1986, the FBI suspected Tony Spilatro was involved in more than two dozen murders. But there may be more than meets the eye to Tony's reputation, according to Mob Museum VP of Exhibits and Programs, Jeff Schumacher. Now, he may have been involved in murders, or maybe he wasn't. You know, we don't have any kind of government record that shows that he was at this point. I'm not defending Tony Spilatro in any way, but, you know, it's different. And I wouldn't want to, to glorify the mob. That's not something we do at the Mob Museum, and that's not something I would personally want to do. These are criminals. These are people who are, uh, have violent tendencies, and they, they're not to be glorified. On the other hand, in Las Vegas, that is part of our history. Aside from Jimmy Chagra and Tony Spilatro, Oscar Goodman's long list of clients included some of the biggest mobsters of the era, including one who would be immortalized into cinema history, along with Oscar himself. On part three of Mobbed Up, the fight for Las Vegas continues as Oscar Goodman's career reaches new heights. I got a phone call one day from uh, Frank Rosenthal. Uh, the fellow who's depicted in the movie by Robert De Niro. He said, how would you like to be in the movies? And is there truth to the story of Frank Rosenthal as told on screen? They've created the monster uh, out of dime store novels and uh, put him in the black book. I will tell you this, the man had the coldest eyes I'd ever seen. 
he made me more nervous than Tony Spilatro made me. Uh, if looks could kill, I was dead 15 times over. This has been part two, season three of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Also, be sure to leave us a rating or review. Production staff includes managing editor Anastasia Hendricks, producer Carrie Roper, field and studio production by Larry Muir, sound design and mix by Greg Conway. Special thanks to Oscar's Steakhouse in downtown Las Vegas at the Plaza for hosting us on site. And our guests, Jeff Schumacher from the Mob Museum, also Carolyn Goodman, Stan Hunterton, Jack Sheehan, and Mike Powell. To learn more about Mobbed Up, visit lbrj.com backslash podcasts. I'm Review Journal columnist John Katzlamitis. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode.